This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. This is Nabil Mahmood, your host of Nomad Futurist from Kona, Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Brooklyn, New York. And this is Mark Buyan from the West Coast here in California. Mark, thank you very much for taking the time and joining us. Uh, it's been a while since we actually last met. I believe that was last time in uh, November in San Jose. So I want you to take this time and briefly tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and where you're at in your career. I have been in the IT industry for about 15 years now. Uh, right now, I work for Google. I am a program manager at Google's machine learning and hardware infrastructure group. And I've been uh, fortunate enough to be a part of this group. You know, I've been in this group for about three years. Uh, prior to Google, I was working for eBay. I worked at eBay for about seven years, again, in the digital infrastructure and data center group. Uh, I was a manager in the business operations uh, group. And prior to that, I was at Bank of America and a company called Sabre Airline Solutions out of Texas. I'm at a point in my career where I'm very excited about the future of the technology industry. And um, having spent about 10 years in the industry, I've seen the times when you know, we would uh, walk to our closest data center and the data center was strategically located close to our headquarters. Uh, we would walk to our data center. We were the server huggers. Uh, we would go and uh, we would install the application ourselves in the data centers. Um, the data centers would be noisy. It would be very cold. The data center would probably have a PUV of uh, you know, 1.8 to 2, perhaps more than that. Um, from there, and I've seen the data centers today where you know, we've got some of the latest and greatest technology. We've got machine learning uh, and AI helping drive some of the, uh, you know, advances in the data centers that we use today. So I've seen the change over the past 10 years. And I am incredibly lucky to be a part of this industry uh, that sort of builds the foundation of the uh, digital world that we live today. And I am very, very um, fortunate, and I'm looking forward to be a part of this industry uh, moving forward. And, um, you know, probably five years, 10 years down the line, you'll see me as an investor in the data center industry, trying to look at, you know, smart technologies, startups that are investing in the data center. I'll probably be an investor. Outstanding. Well, that's great. So, we will cover that part, uh, the, the future, but what I want our listeners to know is a little bit about your background. Tell, tell us where you grew up, how you really got into this industry. I mean, what, what was the driving factor? What exposed you to be a part of this cool industry? Absolutely. That was very simple for me, Nabil. I did not have an option. I grew up in a family of technologies. My uh, it is actually incredible that I'm able to share this. My great-grandfather was an engineer back in 1901. He was probably the first engineer in the eastern state of Orissa in India where I grew up. Uh, my grandfather was an engineer. My dad was a chemical engineer. So growing up, for me, 
uh, it was either I was going to be an engineer or I was probably a no one. So um, uh, I did not really have a choice. I uh, did my schooling and when there was a chance to, uh, you know, sort of really choose what I went, wanted to become, uh, I had a conversation, a very candid conversation with my dad. And my dad told me, look, uh, you don't have an option. The only option you have is to pick whether you want to be a computer science engineer or whether you want to be an electrical or mechanical engineer. And at that point, uh, you know, this was the late 90s. I said, OK, computers coming up. It looks like a really, really good uh, you know, field to secure a job after I graduate. So I'll probably become a computer engineer and said, great. And that's how I started as a computer engineer. Um, I got my first job as a software engineer fresh out of school, and I really um, did not like it that much. After two years, I realized I wasn't meant to be a software engineer and I wanted to do something else. At that point, I decided to choose uh, to join the business side of uh, the IT industry. And uh, I had to come to Silicon Valley. And, you know, all my friends, my cousins, everyone who've done good in life, uh, I saw them, you know, come to, you know, America and in Silicon Valley. And I said, okay, how do I go there? And the easiest way for me uh, you know, was to join a master's program uh, here in the, in the U.S. And I got a master's, uh, I got admissions to a master's uh, program in University of Texas and uh, joined the school, had a lot of fun, learned a lot. Uh, in the two years, I then became uh, a business analyst, fresh out of school uh, with a master's degree. And since then, um, I have chosen to be in the IT, uh, you know, in the IT side of, um, you know, the industry. And, Data centers and digital infrastructure really um, was serendipitous. Uh, I, you know, back in the day, I was um, a part of the team that was we we used to sell software solutions using a Citrix-based foundation. This was, you know, back, uh, you know, in um, mid 2000, and uh, SaaS was. Not even a buzzword when you spoke about cloud. People still you know, look towards the sky. So <laughs> this was a time when cloud wasn't even started. And um, I realized that a lot of what we offered as part of uh, software solutions, uh, the quality and uh, user experience, really dependent on how things used to run in the data centers, because I would get calls from my customers and they used to say, hey, this is frozen and you know it's not working. I'm not able to pick, you know, use the application. And invariably something would have happened in the data center. And that's how serendipitously I started engaging with folks in the data center. And I realized, okay, this looks like a really good place to build my career. You know, then I got a job uh, at Bank of America and uh, they were looking for a program manager. Uh, to come and consolidate their sprawl of data center. It was a $2.5 billion program uh, back uh, back uh, you know back in the day. 
uh, they, Bank of America did not really have its uh, own central core data center. They had, you know, these colos all over the U.S. and they they wanted someone to come and consolidate that. Joined the program, you know, learned a lot at the bank, but realized that the bank was uh, a little slow in terms of adoption of technology. I always had an inkling of what's new, what's uh, the latest technology out there within the data center space. And I realized that I have to uh, try my luck uh, at some other company um, if I were to know what's the latest and greatest when it comes to data center technology. Fortunately, eBay at that point, uh, you know, this was purely luck. I had applied to so many positions. Uh, fortunately, eBay uh, my hiring manager back at eBay really liked my background in the data center space and they wanted to hire me and I joined eBay and then there was no looking back. I think seven years I learned everything that I could learn um, at eBay. You know, the scale was just very, very different from what I've seen uh, at the bank. Uh, eBay at that point was, you know, growing back in, you know, early you know, 2000, you know, 2011, and I learned everything about the data center industry, you know, how to make efficiency in the data centers, you know, making data centers more sustainable. You know, the tricks of the trade was basically my seven years at eBay, and then I got a job uh, at Google, which I could not really, um, so I couldn't say no to the offer. I wasn't really looking for a change back in the day. I was just very satisfied with what I was doing. I was learning a lot, having a lot of fun at eBay. But then uh, Google wanted um, to deploy machine learning hardware back in the day. And I had that experience, uh, again, fortunately, uh, because I was a part of uh, Infrastructure Masons, which was an industry peer group. And I had this experience of liquid cooling within the data centers. I would work with some of the startups in the space. I used to work with Dell, you know, just volunteer my time and understand uh, how do you really, you know, sort of future-proof the data center uh, in terms of, uh, you know, cooling technologies and liquid cooling happened to be something that folks were tinkering around back in the day. And I had that experience and Google really liked that experience because they were beginning to build, um, you know, machine learning uh, pods in the data centers, you know, and it required liquid cooling. And I got a job at Google and I've been here for three years. So, uh, you know, how did I come here? It was a bit of luck. It was a bit of being at the right uh, place in the right time and a little bit of uh, hard work. I think it's uh, all three combined. I, I think I can I can speak for, for both of us. And I could probably speak uh, for some people in your background. If you weren't sure that you made your father and grandfather proud after that background, I think it's probably pretty clear that you are your father's son and your grandfather's grandson, um, yeah. an engineer's engineer through and through. Um, um, you know, you know, thank you for that. I don't know if I've still made them proud, but but yeah, thank you for that. The um, you know what, what's what's amazing, um, I think uh, about the um, you know the stories that you hear about people that have gotten into our industry, particularly at this time that have now reached the uh, you know kind of the pinnacle of um, you know understanding what's going on in the data center is it's 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 the timing you know it's so rare um, to have you know someone come into an industry like this 
um, really at its foundational level. I mean, you basically came during the Industrial Revolution and you were the one, that, there was nothing to learn. There was nothing you could learn at school about how the data center works or how machine learning works or how liquid cooling works because those concepts didn't really exist in the theoretical form. You had to kind of do it while you were, you were, so you kind of invented it. I mean, you were at the forefront of how this stuff happened and it's just not something um, that you can learn in a book. And it's this kind of weird um, uh, scenario that I think is unique to our profession given the timeline. Um, and, and I wonder if you can speak to somehow how that, that timing really impacted you know, your success in your career. And clearly, you know, you have just uh, an amazing zest for knowledge and, and, and you just, you, you just love it. Right. So it's, it's not, it doesn't really seem like work when you're interested in it. And in your spare time, you're learning about liquid cooling because it actually interests you because again, you are your grandfather's grandson and your father's son. Um, but uh, what, what do you think about that? What do you think about the timing being so unique in your particular case and really your generation's case? I think I, I like I said, uh, I am incredibly lucky to be where I was uh, back in the 2000 and to have you know gotten a break in the industry because if you look at folks, you know our peers in the industry, you will not find people who say, okay, I went to a specific college and did a degree in data centers and I got a job in one of the data centers because that career part really does not, did not exist, does not exist for the most part right now. We're we challenging that, we're pushing that, we're trying to change that. And I'll come to a few examples of how we're trying to change that. Uh, but, you know, going to a school, getting a data center degree and then joining a data center just wasn't the case back in the day, you know. Um, you were either, uh, you know, mechanical engineer and you joined the data center because you know a little bit about mechanical cooling, you know, mechanical systems, you are, or you were an elect electrical engineer and you joined the data center in the electrical, uh, as an electrical engineer. Uh, or uh, you're probably a real estate person who, you know, worked in getting the data center, you know, land acquisitions done and working with the city to engage uh, with the uh, zoning and uh, you know other rights that are required to build a data center there wasn't a fixed path to get into the industry um, looking back I think a few things really uh, you know helped me you know make my decision very clear first I was seeing where do I apply what I studied uh, in my existing uh, job. And I realized that there isn't really one specific area that I studied that could be applied, you know, because data centers is sort of, you can look at data center as a convergence of a numerous fields coming together, right? I can talk to my peers who did a mechanical engineering and can explain them how mechanical engineers or mechanical engineering sort of fits into the data center world. I could do the same with electrical engineers. I could do the same with real estate folks. I can do the same with IT folks. I can do the same with computer science people. I don't find an industry where you can have these four or five or six distinct functions sort of come together the way it came together with data centers. So I realized that pretty early on, and I felt like this is this place where I want to spend my career because I'm not only learning or applying what I did 
uh, you know, what I was uh, taught at school or what I learned and what was my craft, which was computer science. But I'm having exposure to this incredible wealth of knowledge by really, really smart people who came from different walks of life. Um, now, having said that, one of the challenges that we are finding, and, and this is, you know, during our stay at, um, during my stay at um, eBay and right now at Google, and generally, you know, engaging with folks uh, from the industry and peers, what we are realizing is that our pipeline is not as solid as we would want because, you know, folks, quite frankly, just do not know about the industry. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, right now I'm, you know, enrolled at my at an MBA uh, school at Berkeley, and uh, I remembered my orientation, and they wanted uh, me uh, to introduce myself, and I said I come from the data center industry, and you know, out of a class of sixty. Probably 59, 58 did not even know, uh, you know, what a data center was. And, you know, these are folks who work here in the Valley or somehow engaged uh, with, uh, you know, industry in Silicon Valley. They haven't heard about, you know, data centers. So people, so you can imagine folks who are not directly, you know, in, in the IT industry, people who, you know, study, uh, let's say, finance or people who study marketing, right? They wouldn't know about the industry. But we know what we need all of these people to help sort of build the um, sort of the, the foundational talent uh, that we need in the industry. And one of the ways we are sort of challenging that is by working with schools. And uh, when I say we, I'm actually speaking for the industry. I'm speaking for, um, you know, industry peer groups such as informations. I'm speaking for training uh, companies that train, um, you know, people who are in the digital infrastructure industry. I'm talking on behalf of, you know, companies and hyperscalers such as the eBay or Google, Facebook. You know, there is a collective effort to really work with academia to help them understand that the time has come to really come up with a formal degree. Um, for data centers. And one of the success stories has been uh, the degree that uh, has been established in um, you know, SMU uh, in, in Texas with the SMU um, leadership uh, to help them come up with a syllabus for this four years degree. In fact, I think it was, it's a two years degree on, on data centers. Now, they need a little bit of a background, um, you know, to join the degree, you need to be somehow, uh, you know, related to distinct functions that are required in the data centers. But after you graduate, you could go and, and you could go uh, to work for Google or Facebook, or you could go work for a digital reality or Equinix. So that's a very, very straightforward path into the digital industry. Sorry, I sort of spoke uh, along. Uh, I'll stop here and ask for uh, any questions. Anything well, Nabil, I will say one thing, which is I have never heard someone so so eloquently suggest what the reason for us starting this podcast was in general, which was raising awareness of the critical infrastructure industry, you know, for for the younger generation. So, um, you know, I think I think we're all on the same page there. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, our message, Mark, is more about 
you know, creating awareness, creating that general knowledge and encouraging people to get into space. You actually nailed it right on the head. So we kind of take it for granted that we are the foundation of everything. I mean, look at the world being connected. The only reason that there is any sanity in this day and age, in this time of tribulation, is because of technology. And that really goes down to the root of it, which is the data center. One, one of the things that you actually mentioned was the, the fact that being a data center technologist requires uh, a general understanding of a lot of different specifications or different subjects. Like you mentioned mechanical, electrical, structural, real estate. Finance. If you look at any industry other than data center, we are kind of like a Swiss army knife that's got all the tools. Anyhow, the point is that other industries have got certain limitations that you can go to college and get a degree for that. We don't have that. But like you said, SMU is working towards it, which is great. But you also also remember this thing, what we've got today is probably not going to be there tomorrow. And the new generation that's going to be looking into getting into the mission critical space or the infrastructure or the data center or, or at the application layer, there's going to be a constant evolution. Our industry is changing on a daily basis. So folks, if you're interested, have an open mind, have the willingness to learn. But you know, like uh, Mark had mentioned, have a foundation of some sort. Mark, I wanna lead that into one question. It's kind of interesting that out of all the people that we've actually had on our podcast, there's a, the, there's a variety of characters, right? Uh, we've got people that have got JD degrees. We've got people that have no college uh, experience. As a matter of fact, probably even high school dropouts. And there's a majority of them. You were very fortunate in a lot of ways that you didn't have a choice. I'm, I'm curious to know, why did you end up picking computer science versus you know, a safe zone uh, where you had electrical, mechanical, and even uh, chemical engineers in your family? How did you end up picking that? Because that, I mean, coming out from an Indian family, um, you know, and not knowing exactly where the industry is headed, that was a high risk uh, step for you. I guess in his family, computer science was the rebellion. I mean, computer engineering was, he was the rebel. Nabil, uh, yes, what you're, what you're saying is true. There was a high, high amount of risk, but you know, for me, the, the choice was a binary. Um, are you going to get into an, an existing, you know, established, you know, field, such as a chemical and electrical and wait for probably, you know, six to eight months, you know, knock on each of the employers, prospective employers, uh, and, and try to, you know, float your resume and get a job? Or are you just going to join computer science and wait for someone to come into your campus and give you an offer six months before you graduate? Right, so so the choice was was quite easy. Computer science back in the even back in the day uh, was uh, the best paymaster, and the fact that they will come, you know, you you've you've had sort of the largest, you know, sort of IT consulting company, the Deloitte's and the Accentures and the and the Infosys and the Tatas come to campuses and hire people before, you know, about a year before you graduate. So it was it was just, I mean, I actually didn't risk. I, in fact, chose a very, I was very risk averse by choosing computer science. Yeah, I think that and, probably comes with exposure as well, right? I mean, the, the, the schooling in India probably was forward thinking. Unfortunately, what is, is one of those things that we don't see in the US, uh, computer science or anything that's got to do with a technical degree, for people and the younger generation to, to come to our space. We're not really looking uh, or promoting that 
uh, in the U.S. markets. We're generating I mean, a lot more. We're, we're creating a lot more lawyers than we are engineers. I, I, I completely agree agree with that. In fact, uh, you know, one of the nonprofits that I started, uh, I partnered with a few like-minded people who wanted to give back to the society, um, you know, was a nonprofit called You Can Inspire, which uh, was formed uh, while I was at eBay. And uh, what what we did was we wanted to have um, kids, teenagers, who are at risk in the society, you know, who, who grew up in a broken family or who probably have uh, their first exposure to law enforcement. We wanted to get these folks and show them what their future could be if they decide to make the right choices. A lot of time these kids, and I'm talking about kids who are growing up in East Side Palo Alto, probably three miles from the Facebook campus. You know, here is a community that grows, uh, that that's growing up, um, you know, probably a stone throw away from the Facebook's campus, have no clue about how to join Facebook, how to go there and, and, and get a job there. Uh, they probably know Facebook because, you know, rich kids that they know about have phone and they have Facebook apps. Um, on the other side, you've got kids growing up, you know, 5,000 miles away in Asia. And before they even understand who they are as a person, they've been told that their future lies in Silicon Valley and they have to go to Google and work for Google or work for Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of disparity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what what I realized working with these folks and uh, talking to them, I mean, I was just curious to know a little bit about kids growing up in Silicon Valley. I used to go and talk to them. Uh, these are uh, really smart uh, kids. Unfortunately, they're disillusioned and disenchanted because of the circumstances. But, but I was very curious to talk to these kids. And when I when I used to talk to them in community events, I would ask them, hey, what do you want to be? And probably 99% of them wouldn't say that they want to join the tech industry and be the next Mark Zuckerberg. They probably did not even know that they have this incredible environment. Uh, they're growing um, in, in, in terms of uh, technology industry, and they could be a part of that, right? Um, some of them were probably dissuaded because they were told that you need to have a computer science degree from Stanford to get into a Facebook or an Apple. Well, the, the reality is not true. I don't have a computer science degree from Stanford. Yes, I did have a computer science back in the day uh, from an unknown university from where I grew up, but it doesn't matter. All they need is and the willingness, right? And And today... Uh, in fact, some of these tech industries, they don't even require a four-year degree to become uh, a developer. So a, a lot of things are changing, and these kids, they just needed um, you know, an exposure. So we used to invite them to the eBay campus, and I used to give them a tour of the data center because I felt like people would learn the best. Kids, particularly when they're growing up, they would learn or get excited the best when you show them something that would really catch their imagination. So I would show them the data centers, the blinking lights, and I would show them the network operating centers with all of these screens where you would monitor traffic to eBay. 
and I would see their eyes glow. I mean, they would be so excited. And some of them would come up to me and, and ask me, how do I get a job here in the industry? How do I get a job in the eBay? Well, I mean, quite the, 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 the short answer is you just need to figure out a way. I mean, if, if HR is, is what tickles your fancy, you can be at eBay being an HR uh, manager. If you want to join finance, you join marketing can be an industry in the industry you don't need to be a software developer i mean it's great if you are uh, but that's not necessarily the case Uh, and you know we had a formal program at ebay a few of the folks who showed interest we put them in the formal program where ebay employees would volunteer time to teach them coding And, and i think this is the way we got to pull in uh you know, kids and people um, who are not as fortunate as us uh, in terms of just the awareness of what you can do uh, if, you know, if you are uh, somehow associated uh, in the computer science uh, field or the technology industry. And I think, I, yeah, you know, what's, what, what, what strikes me when I hear that is that, you know, when you think about like the traditional questions that you hear about during like the infamous Google interviewing process or Facebook interviewing process or Amazon interviewing process, it's not usually the, you know, give me this technical solution to this problem. It's, you know, Give me here. Here's something, you know, figure out how many you know gumballs are in this thing and don't tell me how many there are. Just tell me how you're going to conceive of how many they are. It's really about how you think and how your brain works and the rest of that stuff you can learn. Literally, you can Google it. I mean, you're the Google guy, right? You can you don't, you don't have to actually know the knowledge anymore. It's not memorization doesn't actually win anymore. I, I completely agree with that. And, and, and that's why Google is you're done with four years degree as a requirement for someone to come work at Google. Because you're, you're, actually, you're actually preventing the really, really sharp folks, folks like the Zuckerberg and the Bill Gates who did not go uh, for a four-year formal education, you're actually preventing them from coming in and, and joining the industry. Yeah, right? I've always when said, I've said yeah. Problem. I've said for a long time that the, the whole point of the four-year degree is really more social than it is educational, right? It's it's an opportunity for you know kids to get out of their parents' houses and, and be on their own and, and try to explore the social dynamics so they're ready for the world. And I can make the argument that the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Steve Jobses of the world were, are not like the most social beings, um, uh, geniuses, brilliant, all that stuff. But uh, in some cases, because of the way their brains work, they, they might not... Uh, you know, have had the the kind of social benefits associated with uh, the the four year degree, but it really has nothing to do with underlying knowledge. Sorry. And there's a couple of things you know that come out of it as well, whereby I believe discipline is imperative. You've got to be disciplined. And you've got to have the desire to learn. Our industry is constantly evolving, so there's that continuous change, continuous learning. I mean, what you know today is all about tomorrow in a lot of cases. So you've got to have the desire to learn, and. You know what? If Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson can do their internship, I think <laughs> anybody can. So let's switch gears a little bit. You are a technologist. You've been in the industry for a few years. We have had the opportunity of speaking on the circuit. As a matter of fact, we've been on panels as well, debating machine learning, artificial intelligence, and other technology and platforms. Based on where we're at today and the fact that you're totally, totally, totally excited about it, and we, we've got this Hollywood image about us whereby it represents a dark vision of the future. Are you in the current state, looking today, looking at the future, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future of humanity and the industry in general? 
I'm very optimistic about the future. Uh, and, and I'm very optimistic because uh, of a few things. Number one, I think a, a lot of a uh, lot of advances uh, that we are seeing in the technology industry is for the greater goodness of humanity. Uh, and, and we've seen the examples time and time again. Um, there are associated downsides of uh, some of the technological advances that we have seen, but I inherently deep within believe that human beings are smart enough to figure out ways to circumvent these challenges. And I think we as a people will figure out ways to circumvent the challenges and the challenges are manifesting itself in numerous ways. An example would be my three-year-old son, when he wakes up, he the first thing that comes from his mouth is, I want the phone because I want to watch my YouTube video. Right? Imagine um, you know, the the social skills that our next generations are going to have with you know spending multiple hours on the screen trying to uh, you know play their games or watch their videos. Um, in a way, we're getting addicted to our devices, and, and that's that's uh, that's a, a real possibility that kids are going to have uh, some sort of a negative consequences of because of their constant engagement, sort of this constant, uh, you know, instant gratification that they're getting by engaging with their devices. But I also believe that we, as uh, you know, as a society, we will figure out the best way forward i mean just just let's just take a step back and think seven months back would you ever imagine yourself wearing a mask and you know distancing yourself uh, you know from the crowd when you go to a market you go to a, you know a grocery store no no one imagined i mean you know we would really really laugh at things uh, like that if we were told that at one point you're going to wear your mask and come out in the public but look where we are today. I mean, it, you know, we, for the most part, I mean, politics apart, I believe, uh, you know, a, a large amount of uh, population today are taking care of themselves by, uh, you know, wearing masks and socially uh, distancing themselves. Uh, and this, we figured out a way. In the same way, we will figure out a way around everything that's negative around um technology and the future of technology. A lot of people bring up things that AI probably, you know, it's a Frankenstein monster that we're creating that will, uh, you know, at one point become out of control. Well, guess what? Well, if it becomes out of control, the same people who built it will probably figure out a way to sort of take the plug out or, or you know, remove the power from that device. I mean, there's got to be a solution. I don't believe that we are building this Frankenstein monster uh, you know, at, at one point will take over uh, humans. I, I choose not to believe so. To me, the future is very, very optimistic. So Mark, you and I had this conversation, I think, in San Francisco about AI. I think uh, we were both in agreement. It's probably good to say here as well that no matter how intelligent AI can get, there's no replacement of human intelligence. I, I completely agree uh, with that, Nabil. And there was this also this argument of uh, labor dislocation, right? I mean, okay, let's. This is not the first time we're facing this. Let's go back a hundred years back. We had the same 
problem, right? Are you going to use the horse carriages or are you going to use the automobiles? Are you going to have people in the factories or are you going to use machines in the factories, right? We've gone through this. This is just the, the next iteration. And, and we will come out of this as a successful society like we've always done. So for me, I think those arguments, at least, you know, I, I still need someone who can convince me the other ways. For me, this is the future is optimistic. I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not a pessimist. Look, I think it's true. I think there's no question that uh, the idea of increasing efficiency and increasing productivity and, and allowing, you know, humans to focus uh, more on the theoretical things than, you know, being in, in, in the mines and doing the, you know, the manual labor that they don't necessarily need to do is always going to inherently have the people that, you know, can't see outside the box and are, are concerned that their lives are going to be disrupted as the naysayers and the people that resist that type of change. Change is always going to be controversial. But inevitably, progress is named progress because it gets you to a, a better place. You, you know, that's just the, the, the nature of the beast, which is why, you know, the progressives versus the conservatives. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to turn this into a political conversation. But at least I'm going to say 65 to 70 percent of us are right. That's all I'll say. For, for the amount of time that I've known you, I've always sensed that you are very passionate about technology. What kind of tech interests you in your current capacity, both as business and personal? Would you mind sharing that with our listeners? Well, I mean, there's just a whole host of uh, options in, in front of us right now uh, that is going to become really uh, you know, great products in the future that is going to be, uh, you know, used by humanity for its benefits. Uh, you know, a few examples, right? Um, today, edge computing is what the cloud was probably in 2007, 2008. People really did not know, but everybody wanted to talk about it. But to me, uh, I think edge computing is one of those enablers. And I use the word enabler because at the end of the day, it enables uh, a certain use cases that is not possible today. Um, it is going to make things faster. It is going to help us um, use a 4K video on our cell phone you know, while we are you know, probably uh, shopping at Costco. Today, it's not possible because 5G is not, you know, it's not real today. Um, with edge computing, a lot of these use cases, right? I mean, streaming games, um, for example, you, autonomous cars. You talk about uh, you know robots in the factory floor. These are all technologies that we have today. All it needs is an enabler, and I see edge computing as that enabler. Um, IoT is another use case where you know all it needs is an enabler like an edge computing to realize the full potential of it. So to me, edge on one aspect and, and the in the uh, foundational level is something that is very, very exciting moving forward. <clears throat> um, on some of the other uh, examples that I want to touch is uh, AI and, you know, I work on the hardware sort of, I, I like saying that I work on uh, the plumbing side of AI, but then there is a cool side of AI, all the models and uh, working towards making, um, you know, the, intelligence, human intelligence replicable, right? Uh, and at some, in some cases, even better. Uh, just the, if you imagine the future, right? 
I'll give you an example of uh, radiology. The number of cases of breast cancer, and I, I speak about breast cancer because it's personal uh, to me, um, the number of cases of breast cancer that could be diagnosed um, much earlier and prevented is very high. And the only reason uh, that those cases uh, haven't been diagnosed is because of advances in radiology. Uh, or probably uh, the doctor not being able to see the nuances uh, in uh, the x-ray and saying, okay, this is a case where I think we probably need to uh, look at a, at a much, uh, much greater depth or we need to pay more attention. Um, that situation can entirely be fixed if instead of um, humans, you know, an AI algorithm looks at the x-rays because guess what? An AI is going to be much more smarter and an AI does not have challenges that a human has. It doesn't have a bad day. It doesn't have a stressful day. So its results are always going to be um, you know, objective. Third, it is much better than human in uh, you know, tracking and understanding nuances. And you give it a billion uh, images, it will be able to go through the billion images and learn the nuances and apply it instantly. So these are the advantages that we have when we use AI instead of a human in certain use cases. And medical diagnostic, you know, disease detection, these are use cases that can really uh, improve um, humanity. Uh, quality of our life. So I think these are the two examples or two use cases uh, that are that I'm very very passionate about. You know, edge computing and uh, AI and ML moving forward. I have a. Uh, I'm going to shift gears for a second and probably go back to uh, uh, to to our earlier conversation because I really want to get your thoughts on on this one concept, which is you know the advent of of cloud computing which is like what you know uh, obviously what uh what uh, most companies are using for um their 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 platform these days and given the fact that you have such an absolute love of of the data center um in general i wonder if you have this sense that with the advent of cloud computing and and the fact that a lot of the the kids that are coming out of college as you know quote unquote computer engineers or you know digital infrastructure uh, engineers, uh, what have you, have the sense because of the generation that they came up in that cloud computing is what compute is. Like it's just, it's the software and then you put something into AWS or, or Google Compute or Azure and it, you know, it just magically makes an instance appear without really a recognition that on the back end of that software is a data center with you know, your, your AI and your robots and probably just people that are racking and stacking. You know, the server hovers, huggers still exist. They just, most of them are working for AWS and Azure and, and Google these days instead of the individual companies. But because that so that those layers are so obfuscated and hidden because of the efficiencies that the cloud brings to the to, to the to the fore. Um, do you think that that essentially like has the 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 underlying infrastructure that operates the cloud and operates edge compute? Uh, do, do you have a concern that 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 fundamental knowledge 
is going to skip a generation or has skipped a generation? Like, how do you bring, like right now, if I, I've had customers, I, I run a data center for, for a living, right? So I've had customers that have been in the cloud and come into a data center because they've made an acquisition for a company that still has something in a data center. And the people that are the geniuses behind these huge platforms come in and that, that, that thing that you spoke to where, you know, the kid walks into the data center and sees the blinking light and his eyes like light up and he wants to work there. I see the exact opposite. I see fear from these folks that are like, wait a minute, these are actual computers. What am I supposed to do with an actual computer? An actual computer could get unplugged. An actual computer, something could go wrong and I don't know how to fix it because all I know is a is is you know a, a graphical interface that 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 um, de, you know uh, deploys my compute. Um, so have we skipped a generation? Are we missing something? I think I think so. I, I think so because uh, things have become so much more easy and efficient and cost effective with the advent of cloud that a lot of uh, the younger uh, technologists coming fresh out of school really don't have an appreciation and an understanding of what goes behind the, you know, behind the data center walls. Uh, but to me, I, I don't look at it as a concern so long as you're able to have, um, you know, a healthy amount of, you know, technology graduates uh, who are looking into joining the foundational layer or digital infrastructure layer, I think I don't have a worry. On the flip side, I actually think it does, uh, you know, it does a lot of us a favor. Uh, and when I say as I'm talking about uh, folks who want to start the next Facebook or want to start the next uh, Google, you know, if you if you remember, um, I don't know if it, this was shown in the movie, but uh, one of the partners that uh, Zuckerberg depended on to, to sort of create Facebook was a partner uh, who gave him the initial loan to host, to buy a server and host the first, uh, you know, Facebook application. Uh, so that was a friction for Zuck because he did not have that much money and he had to get that loan from someone. And that guy, you know, Fortunately, is now very well taken care of because of the initial thousand fifty hundred dollars loan that he had uh, up for the first server. Those problems are not there anymore. Today, you know, all you need to do, as as you know, as someone who's working at a school and has a crazy idea, want to try it out, is just spin up a few virtual instances. You know, you don't even have to pay. You know, cloud providers are actually targeting these kids and these smaller startups. Uh, I know a, a lot of startups uh, here in the Valley have been approached by cloud providers because the cloud providers want to have them in their ecosystem early on. So that guess what? When they grow big, they already have an account with one of the cloud providers. So uh, I think it's overall, uh, it is a benefit. I, I think you're probably right. I think I think my con my concern probably, if there was a concern, is that based on that fact, it's going to be more and more difficult to find the people that actually maintain the underlying infrastructure that makes those clouds work, because you have so much of that talent just going straight to the the software part and trying to build an app because they want to be the next Zuckerberg or they want to be the next billion internet uh, billionaire entrepreneur without a recognition that 
understanding the fundamental foundations, understanding like the, the, the reason the nuts and bolts work and having that fundamental just curiosity is just, to me, it's more fulfilling. Obviously, I say that because I don't have a billion dollars from starting an internet startup. So if I did, I probably wouldn't care about a crack unit. I think, Phil, you're actually right. I mean, both the points are right. There's a lot more interest and we'll continue to be on the application layer versus the physical infrastructure layer. There's pros and cons. And that's the reason of the podcast to encourage and create that awareness that if you don't have a strong enough foundation, you're going to end up building a house of cards. Let's change gears a little bit. You know, we have been actually living in this time of turmoil. A lot has changed. Pretty much every company, globally speaking, has had to transform with the current circumstances of COVID-19, whereby you're working from home, you're working from anywhere. How has that personally disrupted you and your business and activities that you're currently engaged in? This is a generational thing for us. We're going to talk about this event to posterity. I think this is going to be that event which will be known as the world pre-COVID and the world post-COVID. That's the magnitude, that's the impact of COVID, at least to me, uh, that I can foresee. This is sort of, sort of, uh, I, I'm reminded of the 60s when there was a lot of research around you know, space and how to go into the space and how to launch you know, our first astronaut in the moon. But not until Sputnik that things really got the momentum and the traction. And to me, the COVID is the Sputnik towards digital transformation. I think there were a lot of uh, IT managers and IT decision makers who were kind of sitting around saying, that, okay, we'll see, this is, you know, we'll, we'll make our decision. For them, there is no choice anymore. They have to invest in uh, in a rapid digitization of their companies you know for the retail companies that have are seeing you know 100% sometimes 200% growth in the you know online sales for them they are going to invest more uh, in in their uh, technology and in their digital assets so i think this is sort of sort of this is the sputnik movement uh, for us uh, in terms of um, just how we work and we live, I'm actually looking at this as a positive, as a net positive, because the, the part of the world where I live, my, me and my colleagues, we spend about two and a half to three hours a day commuting. Imagine the hit on productivity when you're you know, sitting behind your wheels. I mean, yes, you can get creative, you can you know, listen to podcasts, and you can talk to your uh, team, but it is time away from work. Uh, and not everybody is uh, as good in multitasking. And I would not recommend anyone to get on a heated, you know, sales call or a heated, you know, uh, trying to solve problem while you're driving on one-on-one. Uh, some people are good at it. <laughs> um, imagine the loss of productivity. Now, you, you, I mean, that two and a half, three hours back to you. I mean, you can invest three hours a day for the past six months, and that's an entirely new skill set. If if you know if I would have done this show maybe you know six months back, a few people would be inspired by this and started learning machine learning for free on Coursera or YouTube. And six months later, right right now, there would be you know a brand spanking new machine learning engineer. I mean that's what COVID has given us. You've got to look at the positive. And to me. 
this is a positive. You got good family. Uh, you know, yes, you saw the disruption, but at the end of the day, we're spending more time with our loved ones. One. Number two, you're able to put in the work at a time of your choice. You don't have to be at the uh, at the desk at a specific time. There's more flexibility. And and and, and number three, I think. There's going to be a lot of changes moving forward in the way we work where companies uh, that come from the old school of, uh, you know, you need to be at a certain place at a certain time. I think they're going to rethink the way they manage work uh, if they're going to retain talent. It is going to be a talent retention problem. Uh, you know, you've got some of the latest uh, news. You've got some of the big companies that are giving that opportunity to their um, to their employees to work remotely. And, and a lot of employees um, would want to work remotely, would want to leave a um, place where you're probably playing $2 million for a three-bedroom house and, and go to a place where there's more sanity when it comes to real estate prices and when it comes to cost of living. So I think this is this is a very positive note. I mean, it is it has unfortunate results in number of people dying. But at the end of the day, we're going to look at this event and we're going to see the positives. I want to I want to run some quick numbers over here. So Mark, you said three and a half hours. That equates to roughly about 840 hours a year, day, about 35 days. We've, we've gained that much time just being remote and working from home. So that's absolutely exactly. phenomenal. You're, you're definitely going to see a world which is more hybrid, Nabil, for people uh, like yourself. And I also include myself in that category. We kind of I kind of like going into office a few days and meet people, you know, have that face-to-face connection, travel well, a little bit. Mask, mask to mask. <laughs> mask to mask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're going to have a hybrid. I think, I think uh, Google is already uh, looking at a hybrid model. Uh, Microsoft has um, given the option of a hybrid model. You're going to give a lot more choices and a lot more flexibility to your employees if you want to retain uh, the right employees that's for sure yeah and microsoft just came out with permanent work from home right everyone can work from home now uh in so, long as manager, so, so long as the role that you are in is allowed as a permanent work from home because i mean let's be honest a lot of the roles you know a lot of jobs in the tech industry are not required to be done by someone who is in the office because, you know, believe it or not, that person probably comes to the office at eight in the morning and leaves at four and nobody knows that person came. Right. Because they're just not required to go in team, you know, and meet with people and, and solve problems and whiteboard. Uh, but then there are other category of jobs that requires you to be in the room and solve problems, that requires you to meet people, that requires you to brainstorm collectively. I mean, those are the jobs that probably will still require you to come back, but in in you know in a in a very hybrid manner, right? Why can't we decide that two days a week you've got to come into office and the rest three days you can stay home? I think there's I mean, no question. For- yeah. I was going to just say I'm not sure my family would consider it a good thing that I'm uh, I, I've been at home as long as I have, but uh, there's no question that you know the 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 workplace is going to evolve to a just collaborative environment where you know people get together. 
um, for those specific purposes, as opposed to all of the time that's wasted with, you know, the, not just the, uh, the traveling uh, back and forth, but, you know, the water cooler conversation and, and some of those things. But achieving that balance between, you know, maintaining the uh, relationships that you've built with, you know, personal interaction while also being as productive and efficient as you can be from home, that I think that's going to be the, the balance that all companies are going to try to achieve with, with their employees. I want to make one last point, and I think this has not been touched upon uh, in the many discussions that I've had and I'm hearing, is that this is actually something, this is our once-in-a-generation chance to really look at global warming. I mean, if you mandate a two days work from uh, office and three days home, imagine the amount of carbon dioxide that's not put into the environment, right? You know, the city, the environment, the family, I don't see a reason why we need to go five days back to the office. I certainly am not going. Absolutely the point, I believe. I mean, some of the things that you actually emphasized on pertaining to the, the future and tomorrow totally does make sense. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, I've been talking about digital transformation for the last five, six years, if not longer. And it's your story is immaculate. The fact that you had no choice other than to become an engineer. We are in the same situation, globally speaking. We don't have a choice. Digital transformation, work from home, work from anywhere is the new norm. It's the norm of the future. So having said that, there's a lot of pros that are going to come out of it. But there's going to be some cons as well. And we, as leaders in the industry need to create that perfect balance or some sort of a balance for that matter. Mark, I want to take this opportunity and thank you for joining us. But before I let you go, I want you to share based on what you know today, what would you have done differently and what advice would you give the younger generation? Oh, uh, when, when I sort of had a choice, but really didn't have a choice. That is correct. Okay. <laughs> or if you were given a what, choice. What, what, what would you have done differently if you were allowed to have done anything differently? Well, knowing what I know today, um, I would find my passion as early on in my career uh, and just stick to it. Because I've seen people who've been immensely successful in what they do. Uh, and the common thread uh, amongst all of these people, and some of them are my mentors, is that they started in their field pretty early on. I wasted 10 years until I sort of stumbled upon the digital infrastructure data center industry. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate, but I kind of sometimes think, man, if I would have been here, you know, maybe five years earlier. So find your passion as early on. Whatever tickles your fancy, digital infrastructure, AI, ML, I don't know, voting, sailing, fishing, whatever tickles your fancy as early in your life and stick to it and you'll be successful. There is no question on that. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.